Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo. He is the author of a book called Mindful Investing, Right Focus, Better Outcome, Greater Well-Being. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Jonathan. Jordan, thanks for having me back again. Appreciate it. Just give us a brief history of how you got to where you are today. I don't, I've been doing this for 30 years. I don't think there's a brief way to do that, uh, but sure. So I, I, I actually went to college to study finance and, and loved the idea of finance and got really, really bored with finance very quickly. Um, so I shifted to psychology and philosophy and comparative religion, ended up going to grad school in religion um, specifically ended up studying Buddhist phenomenology, which is kind of how uh, it's, the, it's the philosophy Buddhists have about how we bring the world in to create meaning. Like how do we experience the world through our senses, through our, our thoughts and our feelings? And then how do we create meaning and how do we create life out of that? Um, so I studied that for like three years, ended up dropping out of my grad program. Uh, and I, you know, have a degree in philosophy, degree in religious studies, a, a dropout in a graduate program, uh, for Buddhist phenomenology, you know, what do you get for a job when that's when that's the path? And I ended up going to Dean Witter, and I joined Wall Street. I went back to the finance, went back to the finance thing that I that I loved growing up uh, doing and thinking about, and and started being an investor. It wasn't actually until probably twenty, I would say, you know, twenty years later when I started integrating the two things. Uh, and I had a I had a client sit down with me in two thousand seven. Uh, um, and say, uh, you know, right in the middle of the Great Recession and everything's falling apart. And she said, Jonathan, you should write your first book. So I wrote my first book. That was Mindful Money. We talked about that a few years ago. Uh, that took me ten, it took me forever to write it. This one was a lot easier. This was sort of a follow-up to that first one on a very specific topic, which is just investing. Very good. So, I mean, today you have all these people doing all this dramatic, you know, you have meme stocks and high frequency trading and people doing options and all this kind of fast moving. That, that's like the opposite of where you think people should be investing. What, what is driving all those people doing all that frenetic activity? Oh, I, I, I think that we believe uh, and we live in a culture that teaches us that the frenetic, frenetic activity and, and, and paying attention to the headlines and, and making decisions daily actually provides some kind of a benefit. I mean, I don't think people would do it if, well, Many people do it and they get their little endorphin hit, right? They get their dopamine hit. And that's, some of it is that it's, 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 it's the modernization of finance uh, put into apps and gamified that, that sort of creates the same reaction in adults as say Snapchat does for their, for children, which is something that we, we haven't really analyzed that all the way through. We know it creates some kind of problems. I'm not going to say it's all terrible, but um, uh, by gamifying it, we create even more of this issue that adults face but adults have faced the issue forever like we've we've always thought that hey if we do a little more research and and read more deeply then we can make better decisions and by making better decisions we'll get better outcomes that's just not the case all the research academics have done tell us that patience does a lot better to creating better outcomes than activity so what's the downside i mean you're saying even following the news and trading individual stocks and options and all this meme investing is actually more harmful to people than, than helpful. They're all saying they're doing very well at it and it's something they should do more of. 
who who's saying they're doing very well at it? I don't think I don't think many people are saying they're doing very well at it. There may be, and 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 this is kind of how the media cycle works, right? And you know this. Uh, if 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 you have this idea, let's just deal with the one big one in the in the recent past and the last probably twelve years is this new product category called cryptocurrency, and yes. we use the big one, Bitcoin. Okay, so if, if if you have you know a million people, maybe it's not that many, maybe it's more than that, that are trading Bitcoin, you're going to have some that do really really well because that's the law of large numbers. You're going to have somebody that does really really well. And then that person that does really, really well is going to be is going to be saying to everybody, "Oh, I'm doing really, really well. Look, I make so much money at this. You can too." That's not how it works. Like, so you you can't replicate after the fact the behaviors that led to somebody who just made millions of dollars with Bitcoin. So you can somehow create some kind of activity that that might, but you're going to end up with you know a whole bunch of people that do really, really poorly. So I don't believe that the majority of people that are engaged in these kind of meme stocks and Bitcoin and other crypto crazes, uh, NFTs, you know, pick your thing. I don't believe that they end up doing really, really well. Um, and I don't think that there's any any research that says that there are, that in, on average, they're gonna do well. I think on average, they lose their butts. Uh-huh. Now you begin your book with what you call the tale of a nine-year-old investor, which is you. Yeah. Just kind of briefly tell us the tale and and what you learned from understanding yourself as a nine-year-old what i <laughs> what i understood as a nine-year-old so i so my this is this is the, the this is the pre-story to me going to college to study finance um i was raised poor i was raised with very little money very little resources however you want to put it um uh, my no one in my household had a full-time income between my ages of 13 and 15 years old. So, so for me, I always wanted to create um, stability and I always wanted to be, you know, like when I was eight years old, I was like, I wanna be a millionaire. How do I get to be a millionaire? I wanna be a millionaire. Like this, is, this was my mentality um, because I, I didn't wanna, I had this sense of lack and I didn't wanna always have the sense of lack. How do I get out of the sense of lack? Well, I, I become rich. So I wanted to become rich. So I, when I was a kid and my, my parents would go, down, go downtown they would drop me off at, um, I think it was a private ledger broker's office, and I would read value line research. And so, you know, I'm, I, I, I have a summer job, I'm working, and this is, you know, I'm nine years old, I get, I, I worked very, very young, um, uh, I, I've got money coming in, I tell my dad, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take some of this money, I'd like to buy a stock, I wanna buy first, uh, and I think I ended up buying first bank system, which, you know, through six or eight or 10 mergers becomes Wells Fargo, um, uh, but right away, I don't own it, all that time, uh, right away. This is this is 1980. So this is uh, the the first go round of of um, banking problems we had during my lifetime. Uh, and this is the uh, uh, what is the crisis that's that's occurring at this point? This is the uh, th uh, thrift thrift savings crisis, right? The, the uh, savings and loans. Savings. Yeah, savings and loan SNL crisis, right? That's it. Um, and and so I I lose probably 50 percent on this first investment. Um, which is, you know, a hundred dollars. Like I don't, I don't invest a lot. I don't have a lot to invest. So I, I lose like a hundred bucks on this. Uh, my dad says, Hey, I'm glad you're getting into this. I'm glad you're, glad you're interested in this. I'm glad you made the investment. I'll make you whole so you can do it again. And so he, he made up the difference. And, and so I, that was sort of the, my first investment in the stock market uh, was, was doing the research, trying to figure it out and then ending up, you know, in this wave of failures. Okay. I ended up with a wave of failures and, and lost money and my dad made me whole. So I ended up doing it again later. Okay. So <laughs> you talk about the pursuit of real happiness as opposed to just wealth. 
what's the difference between real happiness and being a millionaire, I guess, is what you thought would make you happy. Uh, well, so, you know, I guess let's let's think about the, uh, the the benefits of mindful investing, I think, are are twofold. And I, and I think it's important to see both of these. First, when you invest, whatever path you choose, whether you're going to trade Bitcoin or whether you're going to build a diversified portfolio and just sit on it uh, or, you know, anything in between like tactical, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, you're going to be successful sometimes if you stick to that and unsuccessful sometimes if you stick to that. Um, if, if you have something you can spend very little time in, you end up enabling success in another way. And that's why the subtitle of mindful investing involves both better outcomes and greater well-being. And so the happiness comes from recognizing, you know, what is it in life that makes us really happy? And those things are things like spending time with our friends, spending time with our relatives, um, taking care of our health, um, um, engaging in meaningful work, doing something that is good for the world, not just good for you. And, and these are the things, gratitude, optimism, there's, there's you know, in my first book, I, I think there's nine pillars of, of happiness that we talk about. Uh, uh, and, and so by spending less time managing your money, while that doesn't create a loss in the, in the benefits or the outcomes of good management, it does enable and give you more time to spend on those things that are more important towards your happiness. And so you can get better outcomes and greater well-being. You can have your cake and eat it too, is what you're saying? I believe you can. So again, this kind of runs counter to the traditional way of thinking about these things, which is you have to spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, follow the news, trade stocks, allocate your portfolio in order to be successful. If you just sit, sit there, buy and hold, you'll never get ahead. You think that's the, you think that's the prevailing belief? Yes. I, I, think, I, think, I think that that's probably right. Um, I think it depends on what you buy and hold, right? I think that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a, uh, a not enough attention or education for normal people about, let's call it portfolio design, and there's way too much emphasis, and this is the headlines, and this is the, this is the the the, the screaming of the financial media complex. Um, uh, there's way too much attention spent on what do you do right now? What should you do right now? What's scary right now? What's the opportunity right now? And the reality is, uh, if if you'll note that if you buy a diversified portfolio of the great companies of the United States and the world then whatever the opportunities arise, you will be invested in those things because those companies will use NFTs and Bitcoin and whatever to their advantage. The minute they become an advantage, they are a speculation until they have broad adoption. And once they're broad, broadly adopted, then by owning companies, you'll get the benefits. So you, you don't have to think about and be on top of all the greatest and fastest and, and neatest trends and by, by believing that you do have to be on top of all these great trends and all these fast-moving things, you end up jumping on things that end up hurting people. That's why you saw meme stocks destroy people and NFTs destroy people. And that's why you see so many people have lost so much money on the crypto stuff. That doesn't mean that people haven't also been successful. I've got friends that, that have, have been in Bitcoin for 10 years. They have been extremely successful. They have sat on it 
as they've lost 80% four, five, six times, and yeah. it's come back. But that's a different mentality than what's hot now, I get in that, and then I get out and go to the next hot thing. Better to have a, have a plan and stick with that plan. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo. He's the author of the book called Mindful Investing, Right Focus, Better Outcome, Greater Well-Being. He has a website to find out more, which is mindful.money. We'll be back after this. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo. He's the author of Mindful Investing, Right Focus, Better Outcome, Greater Well-Being. He has a website you can find out more, which is mindful.money. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Hey, Jordan. So you got a brief history of investing. Let's just kind of give him a brief idea of some of the major things that happened uh, pre-1980s, the lesson we can learn from those times. Before 1980s, I think most people invested with individual stocks, which which means two things. One, uh, very few people invested. Like not not most of the United U.S. public was very involved in the investing enterprise. Uh, um, and this is 1980 was like when it was my first initiation into it. I said I bought my first stock. My dad followed. He got Kiplingers, I think, and and I think Money Magazine was there. By 1980, the first mutual funds already existed um, and you, you started seeing this transition away from large commission uh, um, trades to somebody buying a fund that was a diversified portfolio of funds but a portfolio of stocks uh, but there's there's this this process of something in industry shifts and a new product comes out 
to enable brokers and advisors to, again, charge another commission. And then something the industry shifts and then new products come out to enable brokers and advisors to make money. And then something the industry shifts and then new products come out. And so today we've gotten to this place where the only thing left in the advisor's wheelhouse, where the advisor can add value, 40, 50 years ago, the advisor had access to information that the public didn't. Like if I was, if I was working at a, a major broker dealer, um, then I had analysts that could call CEOs. Those CEOs didn't have calls that the public could access. Yeah. They didn't have, right. So, so, so the public didn't have access. We had access. We sold access through research. That went away. Um, and today, you know, you can buy for almost nothing uh, an S and P 500 uh, ETF and I, for nothing, like for for zero basis points. You can buy an S P 500 um, uh, uh, index portfolio. Uh, or you can buy for a few basis points a global index portfolio, and and you don't have to think about it anymore. Uh, yeah. That's provided an enormous amount of benefit to people in terms of their investing. Today, the only thing that advisors, you know, the advisors' circle of value, isn't really. It doesn't really support this idea that advisors add a lot of value for portfolio performance. There are great advisors that help people make better decisions around spending, around what they're saving in, which tools they're using, not investments, Roth IRA, IRA, 401k, uh, 529 plans, HSA plans. There's all kinds of things that people can use that people don't know because they haven't done the research or don't, don't know where to, don't know the questions to ask. So advisors can provide a lot of support in planning and then in behavioral support helping people stick through and sort of put whatever the excitement of the day or terror of the day into some long-term context. So advisors have a lot of value. It's just, it's just not the value that, that um, I think 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, people thought it was. And even today, when people come to me, you know, first person, they, 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 they come in and they're sitting in the office, they almost always wanna know about our portfolio management. That's the questions they're asking. And, and I'm happy to talk about it, but that's not really the value that an advisor provides. Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, well, let's get right. So that's kind of the brief history of where we got up to today. So you, you have a chapter called What is Investing Anyway? In, in a broader sense, not just buying stocks, but how would you define what investing is really all about? Well, I, I think investing is, I think the, 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 the definition of investing is, you know, putting something away today so that it will be more useful tomorrow. Um, but I, I think that when you really think about what we are, what we're doing when we're investing is we're expressing, I, this is going to be a shock to some people. Uh, that's fine. Uh, I think what we're doing is we're, we're expressing love. Like the reason I put money away today for my retirement is that so I am not a burden on my children. Uh, that is love of my future self love of my children. The reason I put money away today for my kids' college education is because I love them. Um, the reason I think about legacy is because I want something to, to uh, exist beyond me to support both my family and their ability and engagement in their communities. So it's, it's the reason we invest. You know, investing is saving something today for benefit tomorrow. The purpose for that is always love. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. You say it's investing, but why not investing is risky. I mean, today you can get five, five and a half percent on treasure bills. So, so what's wrong with that? You know, maybe that's investing, but 
Why is not investing risky? I think I think not investing is, uh, you know, a treasury bill. I think is an investment. So so I think not investing is more like putting it in the B of A that's still that's still to this day uh, paying 0.1 percent. Like it's 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 saving without investing. Um, I, if you read further in the book, you 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 know that. I'm also going to say that the treasuries aren't going to get you there either, because the goal is is always going to be the long-term accumulation of an increasing income stream. And so, to get to the increasing income stream, you could invest in a in a five and a half percent treasury today, but 20 years from now, that will not have kept up with inflation and continue to pay that that percentage. Um, whereas by investing in a diversified portfolio of the great companies of the United States and the world, your dividends alone will probably grow at two to three times the rate of inflation. So that's that's an enormous benefit. Only only investing in great companies will you have the access to uh, the innovative power of of uh, companies, the productive power of companies and the incentive to protect capital that companies have. I mean, one of the greatest stories I've ever heard in the last two, three years, four years about a company that's like really protecting capital is Marriott during the pandemic. I mean, how did how do hotel, how does the largest hotel company in the world survive when, when basically every one of their hotels in the world was closed? Like how do they, how do they manage that? Well, what they do is they, they furlough employees, they shut down locations, they, they let people go. They, they kept all their employees on their healthcare plan though, which made the employees incredibly loyal when they opened back up. Everyone came back, they opened back up and their stock price shot back up. So they, they, they protect capital. And if you're an investor in Marriott, your capital is protected by that decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk a lot about the psychology of investing. Yep. And how do you not get, get wrapped up in the uh, the highs of the highs and the lows of the lows, I guess you might say. I mean, even during this year, we had in March Silicon Valley Bank and a big scare about the banking system, and then things came back really sharply. Now we're in the middle of the uh, Israeli-Hamas war, which has got everybody scared. How do you kind of not get wrapped up in the, the psychological highs and lows uh, that are always being compounded? I, I, I think that the key is to, is to realize... When you invest in a stock, you're not buying a strip of paper that zigs and zags based on headlines. I mean, I think, I think many people think that when you buy a stock, what you're doing is, is you're buying this ticker symbol. But what you're buying is you're buying a business. And you can look at your own employer, you can look at other local companies, you can look at anything that's publicly traded, and you can realize that when the Israeli-Hamas war kicks off, that has very little to do with Microsoft's potential long-term earnings. And you have to separate the headline and the headline effect on, you know, the, the, the momentary value of the three-digit or four-digit, you know, ticker symbol. You have to separate that from, you know, the long-term value of a business that when this kind of thing happens, they innovate, they find a way to take market share, they find a way to move into new markets, they find a way to protect capital. That's what they do. And if the CEO is ever in a position where they are not doing a good enough job of protecting capital, uh, then the board of directors fires them and fires some, and finds somebody else to do that for you. As shareholders, they are doing everything they can to grow our capital and protect our capital. 
that's their job. It's their job description. So I trust that. I don't trust one of them. What I do is I invest in all of them. Yeah. There's always this, this argument between passive investing and active investing. Passive meaning indexes, you just buy it and just everything's in there and you just don't look at it. Versus active investing, everybody who's doing it saying they can always outperform the indexes and these passive people don't know what they're doing. Where do you come down on the passive versus active argument? I, I think I think it's a funny conversation. I think way too much ink gets spilled here. Um, you know, to pick your poison. Like I, it does. I don't care. I, I actually think that there's a lot of research that says passive, and you can pick your report. You can pick your Morningstar. You can pick your Vanguard. You can pick your Spiva. You can pick your. You, the, most of the of the academics that look at this will tell you that the passive will outperform the active, and the longer you the longer you participate in passive versus act versus active on the passive side, the higher the probability that you will outperform. But I think that the um, uh, that there are great managers, and you can actually hire a great manager and stick to them forever. The problem will be. The, when that great manager underperforms, if you're shifting from one manager to another manager, you're going to hurt yourself. So I, I think there's too much ink spilled on um, passive versus active rather than just, hey, pick your lane and stay in that lane. Don't don't shift back and forth based on how you feel about what markets are doing today or how or how your index or how your manager did relative to the others today. If you, if you pick your lane and stick in it, you're going to be fine. Like this is this, we're talking rounding error problems here. Oh, I mean, the passive people think over the long term, they really outperform active significantly. Well, I agree, they do. I, I think they do, but not, but it's not, it's not, we're not talking by, they're not outperforming by, by 5% per year. They might be outperforming by half a percent or 1% per year. Yeah, so it's not enough to get excited over it, really, when you get down to it. It, it compounds nicely, but, but I, I'm not, I don't need to, convince somebody that loves active that no, 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 they're wrong. I, I don't need to convince them of that. that that's, not a, that's not that important. It's a rounding error in the big picture. You say that compounding is something that people don't really appreciate enough. What is about the power of compounding that people don't really appreciate? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I read uh, uh, Barbara Freeberg just did, a, just did a thing on this recently and it's the old, it's the old thing. Would you rather have a million dollars today or one cent, you know, compounding at hundred percent a day for, for 30 days? And the one cent compounding at 100% per day for 30 days ends up with something like $5 million. So, so I mean, compounding and, and the, the, the management of a uh, low, you know, high single, low double digit return portfolio, not, not trying to get 15s and 20%, but also not like sitting in the twos and threes and fours and 5%. Um, Compounding that over long periods of time, it's it's ridiculously powerful. Um, that is the most important thing we have. And if if I can build a broadly diversified portfolio um, that's really, really inexpensive and just sit on that portfolio for 20, 30 years, add money when I have money to add, take money out when I need to take money out to, to, to fix something or, or spend on something, um, I, I'm going to end up in the 90th percentile of success uh, by doing that. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Dio. His book is called Mindful Investing, Right Focus, Better Outcome, Greater Well-Being. His website is mindful.money. We'll be back after this. 
Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Yep. Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo. Uh, He's the author of Mindful Investing, Right Focus, Better Outcome, Greater Well-Being. His website, mindful.money. Welcome back to the show, John. Nothing. Thanks, Jordan. So you have been a financial advisor for a long time. A lot of people don't have financial advisors, or they're scared of them, or they don't think they can afford them. What should you do to hire a financial advisor that's appropriate for your situation? Well, there's. I mean, that's that's. It's actually a really difficult question, um, and I think that is that is the most difficult question that most people face. The first question is, should I hire an advisor? Second question is, you know. Which advisor should I hire, uh, assuming they go that route? I think there's really only one thing you can be absolutely certain of, um, and that is when you hire an advisor, the advisor you hire has to be a fiduciary. They have to, they have to be legally required to put your interests before their own. What that means is they can't, and, and this is something that most people don't realize, there are, just as an example, when you think about funds and ETFs that mirror the S&P 500, there are, you know, there, there are hundreds of these um, in different formats. And some of them have internal costs of 0.00%. And some of them have internal costs of 2%. And if you're going to, you know, a broker at a major bank or a major Wall Street firm, they can actually, that, that, that doesn't have the fiduciary responsibility, they have, a, they have this thing called a suitability requirement. And a suitability requirement allows them to basically uh, sell you an S&P 500 fund with a 2% internal load that gives them a bigger commission because 
you know, the S&P 500 is largely appropriate for most investors. So it's appropriate. It's suitable. They can, they can make sure you can, you can buy that from them. Um, and they can actually give you the one that's the most expensive. So that gives them the best benefit by, by going with somebody who is a fiduciary, they're not allowed to do that. Uh, so the, the places to avoid are places like getting your quote unquote advice from major banks and big wall street firms that have, uh, lots of different product offerings that include brokerage products, you know, a lot of private equity stuff, a lot of, um, and I, I, you know, it blows my mind, but these, these mutual funds out there that have these large loads, they still exist. Um, yeah. People steer clear as much as they can. So this, that's the first thing is, is fiduciary responsibility. The second thing is, is you've got to understand what they do. You've got to, you've got to really sync with them. You've got to like them. The, the real benefit an advisor is going to provide is it is they're going to tell you they're going to get you to do the thing that you don't want to do you want to buy the boat the boat's going to hurt your retirement income the advisor is going to say don't buy the boat so you have to be able to follow somebody's advice when you disagree with it that's the benefit of an advisor it's also by the way the benefit of a of a of a trainer when you go to the gym you, one more rep. I don't want to do one more rep. Do one more. It's always the thing you don't want to do that the that the trainer, the advisor, the coach is going to try to get you to do that you need to do. And you have to be able to take that information and that advice in and act on it. Or you shouldn't hire an advisor. You talk about robo-advisors. I mean, that is a solution today is just have a computer do it. And, and there's nobody to talk to. And it just It's highly efficient and non-emotional and does the asset allocation for you. What's, what's wrong with the robo-advisor? I don't think there's anything wrong with the robot. I think a robot advisor is a, is, a, is a great tool for for somebody that doesn't want to do it themselves. The 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 big challenge with a robo advisor is the person, the, the human is still in control. Like if if your robo advisor underperforms, and, and more and more today than say two years ago, there are you know you can go to third parties that compare robo advisors. And so if I'm if I'm in you know a top tier robo advisor and my top tier robo advisor um, in their in their you know balanced portfolio uh, and I make nine percent and on the list of top tier robo advisors there's another balanced portfolio that made nine and a half percent if if that moves me to make a change then I'm the problem like so the person still makes the decision when markets go down, the person still has a response and they may fire the robo advisor. Can you hire a robo advisor, get a great portfolio and then, and then hold on to that portfolio for the rest of your life? Absolutely. The problem is people don't do that. People trade their investments, alter their portfolios within the robo advisor, um, change robo advisors, uh, move from one fund to another fund because people make decisions emotionally. And it's yep. those emotional decisions that end up hurting them. Whether it's whatever the whatever the tool is they're using doesn't matter. People hurt themselves. You you put the advice you have in your book into your own investment. Just give us a sense of the kind of things you invest in yourself. <laughs> so um, I, I say this in the book, I think, something to this effect. Like 90% of my personal wealth is tied up uh, in four four funds. You know, I'm a I'm I happen to be uh, and and like 90% of that is tied up in one. Uh, and, and the fund that I use more than any other fund is, is this fund that's DFA. It's, it's called, it's, the, the ticker is DGEIX. It's, a, it's global, all equity, all cap, 
you know, it's got emerging markets in there. It's got international in there. It's got U.S. in there. It's got growth in there. It's got value in there. It's got small, medium, and large in there. Um, and it's tilted the way dimensional tilts, which means it's tilted towards uh, value, profitability, and smaller companies. I own everything. There's 14,000, 15,000 companies in the fund. I own it all. And, 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 and that's, that's my fundamental story inside the book is you don't need to pick and choose. Uh, and then, you know, I still, uh, I'm still an advisor. So how, is that, how is that fund done over the longer term? Um, it's kept up with the, it's actually done just as well as the all country world index. That's sort of, it's, it's, um, which you can also get, like you can also get the all country world index. Um, but it's, it has under like through 2021, it underperformed slightly because, you know, through 2021 growth was the big thing. Um, uh, but since 2021 values actually come back and I sort of think with rates higher value stays, I don't really, I mean, it doesn't value versus growth. They, those things trend in like 10, 15 year, um, trends, uh, international versus domestic, those trend over decades. Um, so, you know, I, I pick a thing that has international in it and is committed to a large chunk of international and I've owned it for a long time. Well, international has kind of underperformed. I have no idea what the next 10 years holds. Um, but when I look at it today, it looks like the U S is, you know, more expensive than other places. So maybe, maybe this is our decade uh, for international investors. I don't know. Um, but, but it's done, it's done just what you'd expect it to do given, given how it's invested. Uh, and, and you don't have to think about that. You don't have to, in fact, when you ask the question, how has this fund piece or portfolio done in the recent past relative to other things, you're setting yourself up to make a change. And when you make the change, you change the thing that just did well, and then you, that reverts to the mean, and then you lose again, right? So you, that's why you set it and you leave it. So that's your biggest one. What are the other three that you have? It's, the, it's, it's actually the other three are the, are the same thing split into the three categories. Um, so what, what is that? Uh, it's it's the same fund, but split into uh, U.S., international, and emerging. And I, I don't have the tickers off the top of my head because they're smaller holdings. But the, va the vast majority, that's 90% of my money is in that. And then, then with 10%, I play with things like um, angel investing. I, I own a small retail company. I, I invested in a, in, a, in, a, in a bamboo manufacturing company. I invested in a guy that's trying to create... Um, a microchip that uses 98% less energy and provides the same computing power. Uh, I, I invest in a lot of things sort of like um, green, green, sustainable uh, stuff just because I, you know, I think that we need to do that just for the planet. So if you want to become an angel investing uh, investor, how do you get involved in that? That's, uh, that's hard. Uh, that's not an easy thing to do. There, there are forums uh, there's there are groups of people you can uh, what's the um, angel list and on angel list there's a whole bunch of people that do angel investing the problem is it's not it's because it's not regulated it's kind of the wild wild west uh, when you invest you know you sign a massive document that says you know this is all the this is all the ways I could lose all my money and and frankly I've invested in that kind of stuff for a long time and I have yet to see a return anything like my investments in publicly traded equities. Um, uh -huh. Maybe one of the ones I invest in will hit and maybe I'll be, but it, for me, it's, I do that for fun. I mean, some people do real estate for fun. Some people, you know, uh, is it necessary? No, I do it for fun. I, I love small business. I love business startups. And I, and I sort of, I think sustainability is important. So, so I engage in that space. You're believing in, in the, the mission of these companies more than 
Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, mission more than anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you you have a whole chapter basically saying to do nothing. <laughs> it's like it's hard for people to kind of wrap their minds around it. I mean, one thing I guess you should do is keep adding to it. You just just don't put it in once. You should continue to grow the portfolio by adding money. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there's there's a bunch of people that have done research on this as well, and they they say that when you look over your lifetime of investing. Um, if you increase your contribution percentage by 1%, it'll do a lot more good than if you increase your return percentage by 1%. Um, so it's every chance you get, you should always be adding to your portfolio. Um, even if, and this, there's people that are in their 20s and 30s and they haven't thought about financial planning and they're not, they're not gonna actually line out their lifetime of expenses and try to figure out you know, when they have to meet what expenses. They don't have kids, they're not married. And so for them, it's like, you know, how do you incentivize somebody to, to really put money away and take advantage of this, the beauty of long-term compounding? And this is why I go back and wrote the chapter about love. It's like the reason we do all these things is because we love ourselves, we love our families, we love our kids, we love our communities. And if we talk about this in terms of how do we do good stuff in the world? Well, you, you see all, this, all the suffering because of the, of the inequities and all the, you can result, you can help people if you have money, like there's an enormous advantage to having wealth. So why not when you're young, just start building it and then use it as lovingly and as, and as, and as broadly as you possibly can. Well, a younger, a lot of younger people feel they just don't have any money left over to be able to invest. They you know, have four uh, roommates and they're barely scraping by on what they're earning and they just don't think there's anything left over. Even though they have time, they don't have money to invest. Their, their greatest asset, no question about it, their great, greatest asset is their earning potential. And so they, I, I, I hear that same thing. I hear lots of people sort of lamenting, my income isn't high enough, I can't save, I can't save. Yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it, that's fine. Um, I, most people can find a way to save $10 or $20 or $50 a month. Most people can do that. There's a way to do it. Um, and if not, that's okay too, because you're becoming like everyone has the next year. And if you're in your twenties, you know, you're going to, you're going to get raises. You're going to change jobs. Things are going to shift for you. Um, you're not going to stay in this life is so tight scenario forever. And as it shifts, manage your expenses and start saving as soon as you can and save as much as you can. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of the money answer show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Dio. His book is called Mindful Investing. You can find out more at his website, mindful.money. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. 
There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo, author of Mindful Investing, Right Focus, Better Outcome, Greater Wellbeing, his website, mindful.money. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Jordan. The big question is always risk versus return. Uh, people think if they're going to take more risk, they're going to get higher returns. How do you make that uh, balance? So the, the entire analysis of, of risk versus return spins on a couple issues. First, what are we calling risk? I think that um, I think the vast majority of people misdefine risk, and they they think of risk as you know, uh, the zigs and zags of quote unquote, the stock market. Um, when the market goes down, when I buy and the market goes down, I have quote unquote, lost money. Um, and I think, I think that's a problem because uh, the real risk in a 30 or 40 year working life preparing for a 30 plus or minus year uh, retirement, the real risk isn't market volatility. If, if you look at it, if you look at any 20 year period in US markets, especially, there's no, it, it, there's no negative. Like no one's lost money in the stock market um, if they purchased the market and held it for 20 years. Many people have lost money buying bonds and holding them for 20 years when you factor in the real risk. The real risk is inflation. And inflation was dormant for a number of years, 10 years, um, and it's just recently raised its head again. But the long-term expected rate of inflation is around 3%. Um, and I don't, you know, we had a long period where it was less than that. And people were like, oh, is inflation over? Um, and, and anyone that planned based on inflation being over is now shocked. Oh, my God, I can't believe this inflation is back. But once you start factoring in inflation, then it's not it's not then stocks that are risky, it's bonds that are risky. Bonds don't keep up with inflation. Stocks just destroy inflation. Like the dividends on stocks double or triple the rate of inflation over 30, 40 year periods of time. So why, why is it are we defining risk as the volatility in the stock market? That's, that's the first problem. Uh, the second problem when you think about um, risk versus return is time horizon. I think one of the things that drives us to the poor decisions we're making uh, is our time horizons. We're not actually looking at our investing time horizons. We're looking at headline time horizons. We're looking at what's happening today that's going to hurt me today. What might happen tomorrow that will hurt me tomorrow. And because of the way the human brain works, we're not look. We we can't see the wonder that companies are cre creating. Like we can't see if. Do you know that the iPhone is, is what is it, 15 years old? Yeah, 2007 is when it came out, yeah. Yeah, 15, 16 years old. So it's, six, it's 16 years old. So today, a 15-year-old a, a girl um, 
getting on the bus, going to school, has a new iPhone 15. That iPhone 15 has more computing power than existed on Earth when we went to the moon the first time or when I was born in 1970. So no one could have seen that coming. No one knew that that was going to happen. No one could have predicted that we had this little device that had all this computing power, and it happened. No one could have predicted the ability to um, uh, sequence the genome. No one could have predicted you know, 3D printing. No one could have predicted these things, but these things happen all the time. And so we're, we're in these day-to-day-to-day -to -day -to -day headlines, and we're making investment decisions based on the day-to-day -to -day headlines instead of just zooming out and seeing the risk for what it really is, inflation, and then keeping our portfolios focused in the long term. So everywhere in my book, my focus is, if you can, you should increase your percentage exposure to equities because equities solve the long-term problem. Yes, they introduce short-term volatility. That's why it's mindful. That's why you have to then, you have to back away from those headlines. You got to back away from making the, the knee-jerk decisions. That's why we have to be mindful because that's the only way it's our psychology, it's mindfulness. That's the only way we can maintain these portfolios for the long term. I'd be interested in your view on artificial intelligence. People talk about it so much. In general, do you think it's going to be a long-term net positive or negative for society? I, 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 I love my position in that I, I don't have to guess what that's going to be. Like I, is Bitcoin going to be a long-term net positive or negative? I don't know. Is the internet going to be a long-term net positive or negative? I don't know. Is electricity going to be a long-term net positive or negative? Are cars going to be a long-term net positive or negative? How about airline flight? Is that going to be a long-term positive or negative? We, we can't know. We can't know. I, I presume that the thing that we're all afraid of is, you know, the, the Terminator 2 series, the, the Terminator thing. Uh, AI is going to become something that becomes our overlords, that kind of thing. And, you know, we've all seen movies. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of dystopia. So, yeah, I, I've seen many movies of this ilk as well. And maybe it goes that way. But if it does, that's not going to, you know, that's not a positive or negative for my investments. That's, that's, that's just a, it's just a, a really, really bad outcome. And, and well, we, we had a good run. I don't, I don't sort of think of things in that, in that catastrophic in that way, because we've overcome a lot of problems. If this becomes a problem, you know, we're pretty smart. I think we'll overcome it too. Talk a little bit about asset allocation and rebalancing and when should you do that? And you know, how often and between stocks and bonds, it seems like you're pretty much a stock guy and you think bonds are not that important. How should you allocate your assets among asset classes? Yeah, I think I think anyone anyone that says you know I I'm a huge stock guy. I love stocks. I think um, you know I'll always be 100% stocks myself. But that's because I understand the volatility, and I can I can go through a 50, 60% decline and not even blink. Um, so that's me. That's not necessarily one of my clients or other people. And so you have to have as much equities as you can stomach. And so in the book we talk about if you have 80% equities, this is your you know, bad scenario drawdown. If you have 60% equities, this is your bad scenario drawdown. This is how much in a bad time you can expect to lose. And if you can't stomach a 50% decline, then you cannot be a 100% equity investor. Period, end of story, don't even try it. Um, because the minute you get that 50% decline, you will panic, you will sell, you will never recover. So setting the amount of money you have in fixed income is just a way to enable yourself to stick with it when things don't go the way you hope, which 
I promise you will happen at some point, two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, it's going to go south. It's going to be painful. Um, so however you set that, let's just pretend for a second, you've decided it's a 60% equity, 40% fixed income portfolio. A lot of people talk about lots of different ways of rebalancing. Turns out that it's not so much when or how you rebalance that, that creates the, um, the best outcomes. It's that. You don't really have to overthink this. Uh, there are lots of people that talk about trigger point. You know, when, when the allocations are 20% off, that's when I rebalance. I look every single day and the minute the day I see it's off by 20%, that's the day I rebalance. And there is some evidence that says you can pick up a little bit of return by doing it that way. That's way too much activity, way too much uh, to, to, for, to ask somebody to do. So what I suggest is, you know, January 1, you do a little bit of math, uh, turns off my portfolio is, you know, off 5% one way or the other, you know, I have 5% too much equities, 5% too little fixed income, and you rebalance. Just do it the first week of January. Don't, don't overthink it. Don't spend a lot of time on it. Um, do it as simply as you possibly can. The fewer holdings you have, the easier your rebalancing will be. Uh, so, so keep it simple, rebalance simple, don't overthink it. And that way you'll, you'll have a, you have more well-being and more happiness in your life. In the roughly minute we have left to go, tell people what difference it'll make if they do mindful investing instead of the non-mindful investing. Also, I mean, there's, there's two, we talked a little bit about it already. The, 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 two, the two benefits of mindful investing are one, and this is, I guess, is this a benefit? Well, we'll let's talk about it. Uh, similar outcomes. Nobody can look forward and say, my path provides better outcomes because there are no facts about the future. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. Nobody knows if China will invade Taiwan. Nobody knows you know, what the Fed is going to do over the next six months, year. We don't know when rates are going to come back down. We don't know how long they're going to stay up, et cetera. Nobody knows. And because we don't know, we can't, we can't make decisions based on knowledge. Um, uh, oh, crap. What was the question? How mindful investing is going to be better. Yeah. First one is similar outcomes. And because the similar outcomes, because we don't know, we just set it and we build something and let it ride. Um, we get those similar outcomes. But the benefit we've done, we've created, is we've, we've created more time to earn more money so we can save more money. We've created more time so we can spend more time with family, so we can actually focus on our health, so that we can maybe maybe shop better, so that we can uh, uh, we can we can spend more time doing the right things. A better life, yes. Better right. life, new life. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. We've learned a lot. My guest this hour has been Jonathan Duyo. His book is called Mindful Investing: Right Focus, Better Outcome, Greater Well-Being. You can find out more at his website, which is mindful.money. Thanks so much, Jonathan. I think we've learned a lot on how to be mindful in our investing this last hour. Thanks, Jordan. It's been good to be on again. All right. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again.